0: Happy Thursday everybody and welcome to episode 70 of the Snyder Cut. I am Collider's senior film reporter Jeff Snyder and we've got a jam-packed show. Who knows what could break in the middle of this taping by the way. I've got a bunch of emails and texts out. You never know what's going to get confirmed at any moment. But I'm going to start with the Sundance Film Festival because if I don't do it up front I'm going to have to rush it at the end and that's no fun. So let's talk about Sundance. I got to say. It went better than I ever could have even dreamed of. Uh, I had a lot of issues um, signing it, like, you know, not just not not like applying for the, the press badge and everything, but once you get accredited, uh, you know, signing up to get your 10 free movies or whatever, you're allowed to sort of uh, reserve 10 seats. Um, and I just kind of blew it up. I mean, I was busy the day that, that uh, you know, the reservation system opened up. So I was already late to it by the time that I, I did it. And then I was just like, you know what? I'm having trouble logging in, blah, 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 Can't figure this out. Forget it. You know, like I'm not even that excited to see these Sundance movies. And I saved it for like the day before the festival. I think I got an email from the fest that was like, this is your last chance to reserve stuff. And I'm so glad that I finally took the time to delve into the lineup because there was a lot of stuff to like. Um, so let's start with, let's just work our way down. Let's start at the top. Uh, the best movie that I saw, it's, it, it like magically appeared in my queue. Uh, I, I like, uh, I watched it like one in the morning and because it was in my queue, I was so, I just like wanted to go to bed, but I was like, oh, there it is. And who knows if it's going to be there in the morning, like with the way that some of this stuff works. So I'm just going to do it. Cause I, I would be kicking myself if I missed out on this movie. And that movie was Coda. And I am so glad that I stayed up late for it because it was excellent absolutely top-notch, um, clearly the, the best opening night Sundance movie since Whiplash. Jeez, uh, how to describe this one? So it is set here in Massachusetts. It is about a teenage girl in Gloucester, which is like a, you know, a fishing community, who works on a, a fishing boat with her family, her brother and her father. Uh, the thing is that her family, all of them are deaf. And CODA stands for Child of Deaf Adults. So she is sort of their link to the hearing world, and this girl, uh, played by you know maybe not newcomer but relative newcomer Amelia Jones, I don't think I've really heard or, or seen uh, seen her or heard of her. Um, she blew me away. I thought she was absolutely fantastic. So she wants to be a singer. She likes singing on the boat, but you know she she has never really sung for an audience outside of her family, uh, and and they're deaf. <laughs> And so she wants to be a singer. She starts working with the the choir master um, Eugenio DeBrez from Instructions Not Included*, and it basically becomes like this—you know—coming of age, heartwarming family comedy. Like, is she going to go off to Berkeley to pursue her dream of being a singer, or is she going to hang back in Gloucester to help her family with the business because they really need her? Um, I loved it. I just loved everything about it. I loved um, Marley Matlin was great. Troy Kotsur is great um danny uh i'm I'm blanking on his last name but he was terrific the brother and and of course uh, derbez i mean this is just like yeah it's a sundance movie okay like uh, you know there's there's all the hallmarks of the the sundance indie comedy for you know for, for better or worse um but when you have a movie that that is such a crowd pleaser and it's you know, it, it, it's, it's, a different, it's a different twist on this kind of story. And it's not just because the family's deaf, okay? Because there's a lot of things that, that comes with, you know, the family being deaf. Um, I think the sense of humor is, is different. Like They have their own sort of way of talking to each other. Uh, you know, they have, they've developed the shorthand as, as a family, as families do. And I just thought it was brilliant. It was so well observed by, by uh, Sian Haider, the, the writer-director. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that it swept the awards at the end of the festival. This won like the, the jury prize, the audience award. It, it won everything practically. Um, and and uh, Apple ended up shelling out $25 million for this movie. I saw a lot of people like 25 million. How is this movie worth that? But you have to understand that when, you know, particularly right now in the middle of a pandemic, um, box office is not the metric to to measure these things by. I mean, I, you know, there there were some there's some dispute about how much the movie costs. Some said 10 million, some said as high as 20 million, which I have a hard time buying because I wouldn't know where where the budget necessarily went to there. Um, although yeah, there it does involve some shooting on the water with the fishing community and whatnot, but you're not paying for any real major stars, maybe you know, besides Derbez, I, I guess. Um. Twenty-five million seems like uh, like what is the point of spending sixty to eighty million dollars like Netflix has been on the old guard or Project Power, right? These movies that okay, they're they're fun, they're entertaining for like a weekend, but there, there's no there's they, they don't stick there's there, there's nothing sticky about them, right? They were fine. I, I didn't mind either one, um, but I also would probably never rewatch either one. Coda is a movie. I can't wait to rewatch. I can't wait to show it to my own family. And it's like, if you can spend twenty-five million for a movie that you know is great—not like a we, this is great on paper or oh, fingers crossed, we hope this movie is going to be great. This movie is great, and everybody loved it. Why wouldn't you spend twenty-five million dollars on that? And, and I don't know if that you know figure sort of uh, involves um, you know buying out backends. I wouldn't. I don't know really who who had a, a back end on this. Um, and I know that the movie was also financed by some, some foreign pre-sales and, and you know, uh, overseas distributors and whatnot, um, you know, which makes some of these rights deals complicated because normally the streamers, they just want to come in and take world rights. Uh, but, but, you know, and, and normally they pay for that privilege, like, okay, you have a distribution deal in Germany, Apple's going to come in, we're going to pay the German distributor, you know, to, to take it off your hands and, and, you know, it shouldn't be too big of a deal. Uh, in this case, the movie was so good that the foreign distributors don't even want to give it up. They're like, no, no, no. We, we are confident theaters will, will open back up and, and we can't wait to put it back in theaters, hopefully by Christmas. So that uh, I, I was kind of uh, nice to see that, that the foreign distributors weren't letting Apple come and muscle them out of this movie, that they took a, a risk on. And, and the, it seems like the risk paid off. Um, okay, from there, the next movie was Pleasure. Loved Pleasure. This was, uh, you know, it's very graphic. This is about a Swedish girl who comes to LA to become a porn star, but it is not this, the fairy tale version of, of that story. It is the super graphic version, like hard, you know, erections, um, uh, shall we say money shots. There's all, all kinds of stuff. And yet you only see, um, it, it, it's first of all, here's an incredible turn from Sophia Kapel Capel. Capel you only see her groin area at the beginning of the film when she's doing some some shaving. The rest of the movie, it's it's all the male genitalia. I mean, yeah, you see some some breasts and whatnot, but uh, there's no b- below the belt stuff on, on the women. And I thought that that was quite refreshing. I think that's, you know, um, comes out of having a female writer director. Someone who, uh, Ninja Ty- Tyberg, who I would have given best director to. I thought, as much as I loved Coda, I thought that, pleasure was a better piece of filmmaking uh, not a better film but a better piece of filmmaking and ninja tyberg is totally a director to watch she blew me away um but she was like an anti-porn activist and uh, you know really reassured sophia here because you know as a 19 20 21 year old actress you have really got to put your faith and trust into a director and i don't know that this movie could have been made under the under the male gaze um, I love the end of this movie. That, that's really what hammered it home for me. I don't want to necessarily give it away, but you really, I, I, you know, you really see how um, porn desensitizes people. Uh, it desensitizes, desensitizes the actors to their own feelings. It desensitizes the folks at home. You know, where we, we've come to see. I, I've sensed, you know, since I came of age with, in, in the internet uh, porn age, right? I've definitely seen porn become way more violent, a lot more slapping, choking, hair pulling. Uh, That's just what the normal video has become. I don't even go looking for that stuff. I don't even think that that stuff is a fetish anymore. I just think it is what pornography looks like these days on the internet. Um, And, you know, I I think that it has some really troubling effects. I think that young men out there think that that is how you're supposed to behave with women and act with women. And it's not... uh, you know, there are certainly some women who are into that kind of stuff and, and, and like it a little rough. But, um, you know, I, I think that men in general have learned a lot of bad habits from from porn. And I think that this movie goes a long way towards showing the effects of, of that sort of sea change in the industry. Um, but wow, hell, hell of a performance from her and a great job by Ninja Tyberg. Next was Coming Home in the Dark. Uh, this was a nasty little australian horror movie uh featuring you know two you know scumbags who basically take a family hostage during a camping trip and i don't want to say too much about this one because the, the the shock value it has real you know it had real impact um but i thought daniel gillies was absolutely chilling uh as the the main bad guy and i i really thought this was like a great midnight movie if this was if I'd been in Park City seeing this at midnight, I think if that movie would have killed. We'd all gotten out of the theater at two in the morning, like looking over our shoulder uh, together. Together with Ed Helms and Patty Harrison, just a really sweet Sundance comedy. You know, it's it maybe a little slight, but uh, I thought both of them were kind of perfect. Like I had never really seen or heard of, of Patty Harrison before, and she was an utter delight. Ed Helms, this is like maybe the best he's ever been. Like he, he's, I like think he's really, really good in this movie, and I love the ending. Like the. Uh, just a really, really good ending captured by Nicole Beckwith. Um, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend t- recommend Together Together. I'm not surprised Bleeker purchased that one before the festival. Uh, Violation, midnight movie. This is like a, a rape revenge film about two sisters who take their husbands out for a weekend getaway and then something happens between one of the sisters and, and uh, the other one's husband. Um, and yeah, she, she doesn't uh, does, doesn't take it lightly. This movie had some really just stuff, some crazy stuff that I will not forget anytime soon. Uh, it, will, it will haunt you. And I thought it was a worthwhile entry in, in the rape revenge sort of subgenre. In the Earth from Ben Wheatley. I'm not a big Ben Wheatley guy, particularly the last few films, but this was probably his best movie since Sightseers. Um, you know, Shot under, you know, during the pandemic, low budget. It's really, he gets a lot of mileage out of strobe lights in the woods. But this movie had some really good gore in it. There, there's uh, a scene involving some toes that go missing. Uh, and I just really liked some of the visuals. It was, it was super duper trippy, this movie. It got a little too trippy in the last few minutes. It was like it relied on that a little too much. But I thought the performances were all very believable. And I, I, I really enjoyed that one. Crypto Zoo. Uh, man, a, a, a crazy animated movie, kind of psychedelic from the director of uh, my high school, you know, sinking into the sea, which I never did see. Um, but, you know, very, very interesting story. And the Crypto Zoo, zoo is like imagine the sanctuary for all these mythical creatures. Uh, and it's about this, you know, journey to, to find one of these creatures, the Baku which can remove your nightmares from you at night while you're sleeping it, it looks like it, it almost has like an elephant trunk and it puts the trunk on your forehead and can sort of suck out the the, the nightmares and the bad dreams which um, is very interesting animation interesting story I, I dug this one wild Indian uh, with with Michael gray eyes who is in I know um, this much be this much is true the Mark Ruffalo HBO show um, I thought this was good as well uh, maybe didn't love the framing device and, and didn't fully buy the ending. But Michael uh, Graves was very, very good. It's like a, a you know two boys uh, who do something terrible when, when they're very young and they, they grow up and they have very different paths. And then the one who has a worse path than the other comes after uh, the, the, the other boy, sort of holding him responsible. Uh, and then the other movie that I, I liked was uh, On the Count of Three, Gerard Carmichael's directorial debut. It's him and Chris Abbott. They make a suicide pact. Uh, but they're like, you know what, let's just live out our, our one last day and kind of say everything we want to say to people, do everything we want to do, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, it, it was kind of crazy. Um, had had a good soundtrack, good use of Metallica and uh, some, some other bands. And, you know, this won the Screenwriting Award. I don't know if I would have gone that far. Maybe it was just a desire to not give Coda everything, um, but th- this movie had some energy. Kind of, you get, you definitely get a little safty vibe off of it. It makes me curious what Gerard's gonna do next. Uh, Jockey with Clifton Collins Jr. probably features one of his, you know, very best performances. The story's a little bit familiar. You've seen it before. You know, older athlete, if you will, uh, on on his sort of last legs, and there's an up and comer nipping at his heels, um, played by Moises Arias, who I, who I think is a good little actor um so i, I like that movie i thought it maybe could have been a little bit better but it, it was uh, i could see why sony classics picked that one up they might be able to move the needle with that <clears throat> uh our hashtag j r and j we have no idea how to pronounce it uh that was a sort of screen life version of romeo and juliet that i thought was very clever you know it's a little annoying i mean you're watching a movie that's unfolding on on screens uh, like you know Instagram, Twitter whatever it is. So I feel a sneeze coming on. Uh, didn't quite have the same strong script or execution oh, uh, as something like searching. But you know this was a clever twist on, on Shakespeare. like how many bad Shakespeare adaptations have we had? Uh, this was almost like oh for the ADD generation. Uh, I I enjoyed it. I, again, think it's a a promising, like it's a nice calling card for its director, Carrie Williams. The the cast maybe could have been a little bit better because I just didn't really feel that much about Romeo and Juliet. Maybe that's because some of like, I guess this movie is supposedly unfolding on their phones. It's not quite how I interpreted it. But uh, I felt like the, it was the su- supporting characters who kind of stole the show in the, in that movie, which is you know when you're making Romeo and Juliet, you want to have two really good leads like a DiCaprio and a Claire Danes. And I don't know that this movie necessarily had that. Uh, I'm gonna save the next movie uh, for a bit of a larger thing. Mass. This was Fran Kranz's uh, movie. You know, didn't didn't realize that that Fran Kranz had this in him. Uh, I, you know, I had a lot going on while I was screening this movie, so maybe I would have liked to have paid it a little bit better attention. I mean, I was paying attention. Uh, I just thought it was like, you know, it's like a play. It's, it's just, I I would say it's 90 minutes of people talking, but the truth is it's 110 minutes. And that's the problem with the movie. It's too long. If you're going to make a movie where it's just four characters talking in a room, you got to keep that to like 95, 98 minutes max. Uh, so I think that this sort of showed the hallmarks of a first-time filmmaker. I think he, particularly someone who was an actor himself, he kind of wanted to let his casts, you know, do its thing, give them some moments uh, to breathe. Um, but I think he got to kind of rein them in a, a bit more. Um, yeah, I just thought this was a little too long. And, and because, listen, it's not even a, it's a conversation about school shootings. Like It's not just like, you know, the guys in One Night in Miami talking about all this different stuff, like it's grim it's, it's a little depressing and and so i think you want to get in in and out a little bit quicker uh i didn't not like it. i didn't think it was bad i just i was just a little disappointed because i think that that movie really could have been great in the hands of, of maybe a more experienced director the cast is, is really good um i might have cut some of the stuff at the beginning all the setting up of the room i, I get what they're going for there that but it feels just like a play like just Get in, get out, get 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 into the story a little bit quicker because I I don't need all the the stuff about preparing the room. Eight for silver uh, from Sean Ellis, the director of like Cashback, um, and I think Anthropoid was that it. Uh, anyways, that one was frustrating because I liked what Sean Ellis was going for with like the mythology. It's like it's a werewolf movie. It has a new mythology involving werewolves. Uh, and there's some really gorgeous like shots in here. Like, I think Sean Ellis is a talented director. He's betrayed by his screenplay here uh, and, and his budget. I mean, I just thought this movie, like the effects look cheap and, and, and like what he tried to do as a director to sort of disguise those limitations, I thought almost made it even worse. Um, you know, just like the climactic action set piece in, in the third act, I, I thought was a disaster. Um, so, uh, you know, frustrating experience for me, I, I was mixed, mixed negative overall. Primetime, that was when I really had high hopes where I, I kind of loved the, the premise. This was what I was hoping uh, Money Monster would be four or five, six years ago, whatever it was. It's about like a a guy who takes a TV station hostage live on the air. The problem is, you know, he's fighting the whole time to like get airtime so he can make this big proclamation about why he's doing it. And then he really has nothing to say. So if you're going to waste my time for 90 minutes and then not give me like this guy's ultimate like mission statement or whatever, it's kind of just a wank. I I was pretty disappointed with primetime, you know, even though the filmmaking is good. Uh, John the Hole, another example, like very well directed movie like i love the cinematography uh, but it's like okay john you put your it's about a little uh, a 13 year old kid however old he is and he puts his family into a hole yeah uh, in the ground i mean it's like you know a bunker but they can't escape so he throws them down some blankets and some food and he's it's like why are you doing this john why well he was just curious what it's like to be an adult what's it like to be old and, and uh it's like, what? <laughs> you, yeah, and, and then they, you know, I, kinda, I don't know how much I want to spoil or not. What do, what, what do you want to say? He's not going to kill his family. He's not, I mean, he is a psychopath, but he doesn't kill them. They do get out of the hole. And then you would think that he gives them some sort of explanation, that there's some sort of discussion about it. There's not. It's just like an unsaid thing. It's like, we need to talk about Kevin, except we don't actually want to talk about Kevin. So everything just goes unsaid and Kevin becomes a psychopath. Uh, That's a very generous uh, comp, by the way. We need to to talk about Kevin. This movie was not good, John in the Hole. Um, A Glitch in the Matrix... You know, another documentary from Rodney Asher who did room 237 and The Nightmare. I hated the Nightmare. This is a definitely a step up from the Nightmare, but it's not quite room two thirty-seven. Maybe that's just because I'm interested in Stanley Kubrick and The Shining, less interested in, you know, are we all living in a simulation? Are we living in the Matrix? I mean, he gets, you know, I would have liked some more experts on this kind of stuff. Uh, like I liked all the Philip K. Dick scenes in this movie, but you know, a lot of it is just interviewing randos on the internet with really weird theories. Um, I thought it was kind of a, a waste of time. And again, a little too long. Knocking is a movie, you know, one of those movies where like this older woman hears knocking uh, from the apartment above her or next door, whatever it is. And it's like, is the knocking real or is it all in her head? Are her neighbors gaslighting her again? You just don't care. You really don't care that much. Uh, and, and the end is one of those. Oh, okay. It's stupid. Um Good, a good performance, though, a good central performance from its lead. Censor, I was disappointed by that. I do like uh, Niam, Niam Algar, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name. She's the Irish actress who was on Raised by Wolves. Uh, and, and a few other things, that Shadow of Violence movie that I saw last year with Barry Cogan. She's good. Um, and Censor, it has a really strong premise. It's like about a woman who acts as like the, the censor for this you know, TV channel that airs these video nasties late at night. Um, and she's also censoring herself. She's repressed some sort of memory involving her sister. Uh, I thought this movie was just kind of a mess and and cheap. I thought it just looked cheap. It was a lot of, like, style. It, it felt like if you like Barbarian Sound Studio, <coughs> or uh, what was the other one? In the the, the, the Haunted Dress movie that came out in A24, In Something, oh, I'm totally blanking on it. Didn't like it. Didn't like either of those movies. Didn't like this movie. Uh, This is like art house horror, but not scary. Like you gotta be scary. If you're making a midnight movie, be scary. That's really all I ask. Um, Yeah, I thought that movie was goofy. Prison of the Ghostland with Nick Cage. There's gonna be an audience for this one. It was not for me. It was a little too bizarre. Uh, Just a weird, just a weird story. I mean, what else do you expect from uh, Sion Sono? Uh, Mayday as you know I, I enjoyed My interview with, with uh, director Karen Shinore and, and her cast Grace Van Patton, Havana, Rose Lou and Soko but uh, I gotta be honest I mean this is the Snyder Cup podcast I don't really Hold anything back this movie was bad uh, You know it's a, a feminist Fever dream uh, open to Interpretation I really had no idea what the hell Was going on half the time uh, You know I guess it was Well directed as far as that thing goes Like it was probably made on a on a low budget and shot in Croatia. But, uh, you know, the images look nice. It looks like a, a movie that costs some money. I just thought the script was like half boiled, if that. Uh, the last movie that I will circle back to is Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, you know, big HBO Max movie. I saw a lot of rave reviews about this movie. And, and, and I get it, but I watched this movie. I was so excited to see it, okay? Really, like, I've been writing about Lakeith Stanfield longer than anybody. Anyway, this was his big moment. This is the culmination of that career. Um, And I thought two of the, like, you know, I had two trailers. It was, they were two of the top five trailers of the past 12 months. Like, this, I was pumped for this movie. Maybe those expectations were too high. I thought it was kind of a mess. I thought it was all over the place, story-wise. Like, who is this movie about? Is it about Judas? Is it about the Black Messiah? Is it about Fred Hampton? Or is it about Bill O'Neill? Um, I just, yeah, it was a lack of, of focus and, and it was, you could just tell like, they're like, oh, you know, we really like what Daniel's doing. Like we want to, you know, give Daniel this, this, this bigger part and, and he's good. I, I don't think either of them were necessarily right for the roles. I think they're both a little too old. You know, my colleagues at Collider really emphasize like when Bill O'Neill, you know, when the, when the FBI is leaning on him to like make a decision, it's not like a man betraying somebody. This is like a kid. He's a kid. But when you have LaKeith Stanfield playing him, he's a man. And so it kind of loses the whole context that, that, that this story unfolded in, uh, which is that these were kids. Fred Hampton was like 21 years old. Um, yeah, I just thought the story was, was all over the place. It was, it was frust- a very frustrating movie. Uh, it was a bummer, um, wasn't terrible. You know, very watchable movie. I might even watch this movie again, see, you know, if I miss something the first time around. But it is much closer to Black Mass than it is The Departed. And I just, you know, uh, we're going to talk about this when we get into the Globe and SAG stuff. Uh, God, and I'm, I'm already almost halfway into this episode. Jeez. But, um you know, I, I hate to come to, to put the, 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 black movies in a box together right but i have a feeling that that's what voters have been doing this season and that i just think one night in miami and ma Rainey's black bottom and uh and even Defive bloods were much better than this movie so we'll, you know it'd be very interesting to see if it cracks like the best picture field you know once everybody has a chance to see this movie um Anything else about Sundance? I, I just I really thought it was cool that 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 Sundance carried on in, in you know in the face of this adversity that we can't get together in Park City, but they figured out how to do the the, uh, the virtual festival kind of seamlessly. I thought all the links worked for the most part; they were available. You could you had a three hour window to start them in, and then once you press play, you have a four hour window to finish the movie. As soon as you got to the end of the movie, it kicked you over to the YouTube app if you were watching on Apple TV for like Q and A's. It all just kind of went very well. And anytime you like, you know, a festival like this where CODA comes out of it, a $25 million sale, Rebecca Hall's passing, you know, a $16 million sale to Netflix. I think, you know, that's as much as you can really hope for. Uh, So that's Sundance. I know most of you don't care because you don't even know what these movies are. So we will move it along. We got the Golden Globe and SAG award nominations. Geez, what, what to say about these? Uh, Delroy Lindo, the snub is, is certainly unfortunate. I thought he was great in, in Five Bloods. I do wonder if part of it is the category placement, if they just didn't think of him as a lead, you know, because I, I thought he would be a shoe in for a lead nomination, at least in like third or fourth place there behind Chadwick and Riz and maybe Anthony Hopkins. But the fact that he didn't get in at all and Gary Oldman's getting into both fields had me scratching my head. Amanda Seyfried got uh, snubbed by SAG. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I taped a, a not an unofficial episode of FYC with Perry and Mance the other night on Perry's YouTube channel. Go out and check that out if you want. And I it was like, I, I acknowledge that Amanda Seyfried was kind of like the front runner in this category. And then she got snubbed by SAG. And I was like, but I was like, really? Because I, I couldn't believe it. I thought she was fine in Mank. Maybe it was like the best work of her career because she hasn't really had much of like a career. She doesn't she didn't get a lot of opportunities like this. Um, I think it's a really weak category this year for in, in supporting actress. Uh, you know, I'd be hard pressed to even name five supporting actresses who, who you know, I thought really were worthy of a nomination. Um, but uh, apparently SAG disagreed. They found five better than, than Uh I, I'm, I'm with Minari's grandma all the way. You know, I, I thought she was great. Glenn Close popped up in both uh, sets of nominations and Amy Adams even got a SAG award. I mean, you don't have to like Hellbilly Elegy, but I think both of those performances were pretty good. Yeah, they make some big choices. They're very big performances, particularly the look of Glenn Close's character, uh, Mema. But, um, you know, that movie made me cry. It's not a good movie. But if you can make me cry, you're doing something right. And I think that a lot of people in SAG kind of feel that way uh, as evidenced by those nominations. I'm bummed that Paul Racy got no love from anybody. Like, what what are you watching? What are you watching? Uh, I get that Daniel Kaluuya sort of muscled his way in there towards the end. Um, and I get Chadwick Bozeman getting a posthumous nomination for, for Defy Bloods, but like, you know, like I feel like Chadwick is probably going to win for Ma Rainey Best Actor. Like, do do we need to double up on nominations for him? And um, I don't mean to speak, you know, ill, Ill of the dead. Like, I mean, it, it, he was good in Defy Bloods*, but like, if it comes at the expense of Paul Racy, I'm gonna be upset. And I think, by the way, anybody getting upset at the Golden Globe nominations, like, maybe do some some internal uh, searching there because what a silly thing to get upset about. I saw, I think Clayton Davis at Variety's lead about Delroy Lindo getting snubbed. It was like the pain and the screams that you heard on Wednesday morning when Delroy Lindo was snubbed for a Golden Globe. Like who is yelling and screaming about this? Nobody fucking cares. It's 80 journalists, 80 foreign journalists. I couldn't name one of them. It's not like I read their stuff. I mean, I should be able to read... Anything from anywhere, it's the internet. It connects the world, right? Uh, I don't know any of these people. I don't follow any of their work. Nobody knows like who the hell they are. Why do we give them so much power? Why, because they have a TV deal? Like, okay, give the TV deal to fucking uh, the Critics' Choice Awards if we have to. I mean, they're they're at least better uh, voters. I just don't understand why people get so upset about the Golden Globe nominations. Like, okay, 80 people didn't like your movie. Like, it doesn't mean anything. Um, Not to be, yeah, and it is a racist, star fucker organization. Music? What the fuck is music? Haven't heard of it. Haven't even heard of it. Haven't gotten an email about it from a publicist. I know it comes out next week from, like, IMAX. Kate Hudson getting a nomination? Like, what? Uh... You know the Jared Leto stuff. I, again, I think it's a, a a travesty that he's in over Paul Racing. but I thought Jared Leto was good. I thought he was easily the best thing in in the little things. I liked what he was uh, putting down there, and I had that on my top ten Jared Leto movies last week. Uh, if you haven't seen that Jared Leto, let's check it out on Collider. Um, I I just think uh, I think that the Oscar nominations are, are going to be wildly different from this stuff. It's a much more woke organization now, particularly after all the the new invites. Uh, So I I think Delroy Lindo is going to be fine at the end of the day. I think, um, you know, I I hope Sound of Metal cracks the field. I hope that Judas and the Black Messiah doesn't, like, steal its thunder. Excuse me. Um, Here we go. We are talking an hour uh, for an hour like this, folks. The air. You don't really get a chance to breathe. I'm a motor mouth. And so – The air builds up and you start to burp. Um, I don't know. What else can be said about the Globes and the SAG Award nominations? Like the Ellen Burstyn snub, that was a, a, a surprising one on the SAG end, but like SAG never fully aligns with Oscars. I just, I don't care. I don't care about the Globes. I don't care about the precursors. The Globes are a nice party where the entire industry gets to come together because it's film and TV. Like that's the fun part of the Globes. How can you be upset about who wins and who doesn't win a Globe? So it's so ridiculous. Um, And SAG, you know, you obviously want to be honored by your peers. That means a lot more, not as much as an Oscar, obviously. But I, I like the the five movies that were nominated for for best ensemble, and, and you can see it is those those black ensembles. Like they were clearly the best ensembles. The year, One Night in Miami, Ma Rainey. Like, yeah, these are the movies that I would go with for an ensemble, not because those were my favorites after Sound of Metal and No Man's Land, which are not really ensemble movies. Um, so I, I I imagine One Night in Miami takes that maybe trial of the Chicago seven, but, and, and they were all good in trial of the Chicago seven. I don't know. I, I, I would like to see one night in Miami win that award. Um, it does seem like we have some sort of, like it is no land one night in Miami uh, trial of the Chicago seven with promising young woman as the dark horse. That seems like your Oscar like top contenders. You know, Mank, Ma Rainey, they may get nominations, but I, I don't I'm not feeling uh, like those are winners. Um, all right. That's enough award stuff. We're going to have you know, you can watch the podcast with Perry and Mance. We're going to have an episode of FYC probably uh, next week. So, yeah, we can talk about the award stuff later uh, this week. Tons of GameStop projects. It was raining GameStop projects. Uh, we're going to start with the, the worst one first. Brett Ratner shelled out for life rights to some guy who's barely been involved. He's like the founder of Wall Street Bets, but has not really been involved in the group that much lately. First of all, how do you sell your life right? Like when all these companies are interested, right? How do you sell your life rights to Brett Ratner, who nobody wants to see movies from this guy? Nobody wants to work with him. Is basically just take taking free money because this is he's never gonna do anything with these life rights. Um, the other, there was a, a something called um, "To the Moon" from Pinky Promise. That's like a, a TV series uh, from from Noam Tomashov, director of Tank House, uh, and it's like two people, like a, a GameStop employee and an AMC employee, who got laid off and then used their stimulus checks to, you know, get into the the whole uh, stocks thing um i mean sounds interesting enough but you know the filmmaker and the producers they did nothing to move the needle i don't know who what pinky promise is really it's just a smart pr play like if you if i, would, I had a production company if i had a production company this is the first thing i would do just like as soon as something big happens i'm like yeah we're making a tv series about it i'd beat all of you beat you all uh because it's just good pr and then maybe some other company comes in and is like oh you know Can we we buy you off this project or can we team up? Can we join forces? Whatever it is. Uh, A smart play by Pinky Promise because no one knew who the hell those people were three days ago. Uh, The other one is MGM's, the Anti-Social Network. No like talent attached or anything like that to this one. But it hails from Ben Mesrick, who, uh, you know, wrote the books at Social Network and and 21 were based on. Um, Sure. And again, MGM. What did I say? They're just stockpiling the development pipeline in, in, in advance and in anticipation of a sale. I'm sure they have a bunch of offers and they're just not doing anything until No Time to Die comes out. But once that movie comes out, it's going to be a goddamn free-for-all at that studio. I, I'm, t- I'm telling you, they've got the best like development slate, but I really don't believe MGM has the money to make any of these projects. They just got another one, Michelle Williams, uh, playing Peggy Lee in something called Fever from Todd Haynes. And that one's $25 million it's a little bit more affordable but like i just like i can't wait for mgm to actually put these movies into production okay that, that's all i'm saying seems very uh yeah we'll, we'll do this project in two three years whenever somebody's available and by then we'll have new owners who are flush with cash um and the, finally the last gamestop project is from mark bull now i think he's like the biggest name out of all of these right mark bull writer of hurt locker zero dark 30 Knows how to write true stories. Has good sourcing. Knows how to turn it around quickly. Can pivot, you know, uh, on a dime if something should happen. Netflix bought this package. The problem is they got Noah Centineo to star. Why are we still trying to make Noah Centineo happen? Can this guy act like people? He's like a heartthrob. I get it. You know, Brad Pitt was a heartthrob. The difference is that Brad Pitt is a great actor. He really is. Noah Centineo. Can this guy act? I feel like that should be like a recurring bid on this podcast. I should just pick one young person each time or whoever it is. Just be like, can this person really act? We'll see. Uh, this project seems a little big for Noah Centennial's britches, but again, I don't know what the role is. I don't know what the tone is. Maybe it's going to be a little bit lighter and more comedic, like the big short. I didn't really love the big short. So, you know, anytime something like this happens, like bombshell or whatever, it's like, let's make the big short, the model for this. Cause it was successful and it got Oscar nominations. like, okay good luck uh we all saw what happened with bombshell it sucked um you know i I just worry that that uh that this netflix project could turn out the same way but it probably won't in the hands of mark Bull, who's a really good writer oh about an hour or two ago chloe Zhao, the director of nomadland who is probably going to win best director this year uh she has also wrapped marvel's eternal she just signed on to write direct and produce a dracula movie but this isn't just any Dracula movie. This is a sci-fi Western. It's at Universal. They wanna do something different. They're open to these sort of director specific takes, right? Now, Colin Kusama is doing a Dracula project as well. There's a lot of question well, you know, is, is that project dead now? Is this gonna conflict? You have to remember the Kusama movie is at Blumhouse. Yes, Blumhouse has a first look deal at Universal and would probably, was probably planning to take the project there, still could, Universal could still do two very different you know, projects. I'm sure, I'm sure that they're, they're very different. Um, but again, Blumhouse's movie is not at Universal just yet. Blue, uh, and even though it's a first look deal, Universal could be like, you know what, we're going down the road with, with Chloe's version. You're, you're free to sell this to Sony or, or you know, Netflix or streamer or something. I'm sure everybody would kill to have an original Blumhouse movie from, from Karen Kusama about Dracula. So we'll see, You know, maybe they're in a race, maybe they're not. Chloe Zhao has, has several things on her plate. Um, I, I, I bet Karin does too. Uh, but a sci-fi Western Dracula, maybe Dracula's living on the fringes, maybe he's living in a van, who knows? That, I, I, I like this, it, it could be interesting. I mean, it's not what I would have expected from Chloe Zhao, but I like how she zigs where I think she's gonna zag. You know? Uh, there is a new Cloverfield movie in the works from J.J. Abrams. That is not gonna be found footage. I believe it's gonna be written by Joe Barton who is the showrunner on the Gotham PD series. Uh, I'm down, like why are we killing it? Like Paramount doesn't have enough franchises as it is. And I don't even know, yeah, this is Paramount I believe. Um, I mean, they released the uh, the other ones. Netflix did the third one when Paramount sold it to them. Uh, man, that third one was really bad. But like, can't we just all ignore that? I think that we can particularly because it wasn't Netflix and it wasn't this theatrical thing. I mean, this is going to be totally different anyway, since it's not found footage. Uh, I'll be very curious to see who they get to direct this movie. It's not going to be JJ himself, obviously, but I like the Cloverfield movies. I really like the first one. Uh, and the second one was very different, but equally uh, kind of effective, you know, with Mary Elizabeth Winstead and John Goodman, 10 Cloverfield Lane. That first one is still my favorite. And I'll tell you why. It's not because of the monsters and suspense or, you know, whatever it is. It's about the love story. Cloverfield is like a love story and it's a love story that almost every guy sort of fantasizes about, which is something has happened, some big catastrophic event. I need to get across the city to the girl that I love. You know, I, I fantasized about that a million times. What would you do if, if X, Y, or Z happened? How would you get to the person or people that you love? Uh, and, and, and so that's why I love that, that first Cloverfield movie. Um, and I wish them well on, on this one. There's a Wakanda series in the works from Ryan Coogler, who signed a five-year deal with Disney. This seems like mixed messaging. I, I, I agree with one of my, my loyal viewers here. It's like, why not just make this Black Panther two? Uh, or like, I mean, is are they are they still planning to proceed with Black Panther two? Isn't this what this like Wakanda series would end up being? Um, I don't know. I just. Uh, I think we have to see what BP2 is before I imagine it would precede this Wakanda series. I just don't know how far down the road they are with the show. I just think, Oh, excuse me. You kind of got to tackle like one thing at a time per, per Marvel property. You know, uh, so to have a a sequel and a TV series in the works on Black Panther, just seems like, I don't want to say too much because it was like a wildly successful movie but at the same time, I just, like, one, one step at a time, you know? Uh, some interesting director stuff. John M. Chu signed on to direct Wicked, replacing Stephen Daldry, who had to bow out last fall. I, I still don't know that I buy the reasons for that split. It, it, nothing makes sense. Uh, but John M. Chu had, had recently departed Willow as well. Uh, I, think, I think what this, the, the message that this sends is that In the Heights came out really well. I think In the Heights looks really good. I think that they were bummed when, when they had to delay that one. I know John M. Chu would love to see that movie, you know, be held for theaters or whatever. Like, I don't think he wants to, that to necessarily debut on HBO Max. That's not what he had in mind. Um, Universal is, you know, for the time being, they're committed to theatrical. They're not like, hey, we're putting these movies out on Peacock. Uh, Wicked, I don't really know that much about the musical other than I went to NYU and, and hung out with a lot of theater kids and they just loved singing the songs from it and stuff. Uh, yeah, sure. John Chu sounds good. I mean, I think I'd rather have him doing this than like bad action movies or whatever. Um, Ramin Barani directing Amnesty for Netflix. And I like the premise for this one, it involves like an illegal immigrant who, uh, you know, comes into some information regarding a, a murder. And so he wants to say something, but he also knows that if he re- reports uh, what he knows, he could end up being deported because he's an illegal uh, alien or an illegal immigrant, excuse me. So, um, yeah, it involves like a sort of cat and mouse game. And anytime you have cat, cat and mouse in a description, I'm, I'm like, I'm into it. I'm totally into it. Uh, so I, I haven't seen The White Tiger yet, although I just watched the trailer last week. That was a movie that kind of like went below my radar. Uh, I've heard really good things about it. The trailer looked interesting. So I, I do want to check that out this month. And uh, kudos to Netflix for bringing back Ramin Barani. He's an interesting filmmaker. I really like 99 Homes. Uh, we put an article up on Collider about Will Ferrell's new short film, David, from director Zach Woods, who you know as Gabe from The Office, and Jared from Silicon Valley, it co-stars uh, William Jackson Harper from *The Good Place* and Fred Heckinger, uh, an up-and-comer who's in *News of the World* and *Woman Woman in the Window*. Uh, I love this short. I thought it was absolutely great—a a great command of like tone. Uh, it is, you know, because there's some serious serious moments in it. involves someone who's feeling a little suicidal, and yet it's it's you know decidedly comedic. So I think that this really shows um, that Zach Woods is ready for a feature. I, I would. You know, I, I want to see if, if like Olivia Wilde gets a chance to do Booksmart. What does Zach Woods' indie comedy sort of look like? Um, anyway, he's earned that. He's earned the opportunity with this short film, which uh, played at. It was a can selection or whatever, and also is up for an Oscar or up, it's eligible for Oscar nomination. Anyways, go to Collider, check that out. Just Google, you know, Will Ferrell, David Short Film Collider. You'll see it. It's 11 minutes long. Highly recommend it. It will leave you uh, with a smile on your face. We got news this week about a Frasier revival. I mean, I, I guess this thing's been in the works for a little while, but they, they got writers on it now. Uh, they're starting to talk about timing. I, I liked Frasier. It wasn't one of my favorite shows, but I, I respect it. I, I really liked, um, I mean, a great cast. I, you know, we all miss John Mahoney and Eddie the Dog, of course. Uh, I guess if you're Paramount Plus and you've got the rights to Frasier and Kelsey Grammer's down to come back, like you're like, yeah, why not? You know, I, but but you need to keep up that, that humor because um, it was very kind of, Highbrow and intellectually minded. It was, it was sophisticated humor. Uh, Clarice, I reviewed that for Clyder. Go to Clyder, Check out my Clarice review. I gave it a C. I was pretty mixed on it overall. Um, I liked Rebecca Breeds, who does a good job, I thought, as you know, uh, as Clarice Starling. I mean, as good a job as you can expect. Like she's stepping into some huge shoes filled by you know um, Jodie Foster and later Julianne Moore, um, but. The show around her, it just doesn't stand out the way that like Silence of the Lambs does. And I know it's hamstrung. I can't mention Hannibal Lecter or anything. And, you know, the Buffalo Bill stuff already happened. But it's like, all right, you need to sort of set up who is the villain of the season. By episode three, you really haven't done that. It just sort of uh, laid the groundwork for like a conspiracy theory type of thing. Episode two, I thought was a total waste um, you know, it's got her dealing with like a Waco type situation. And it's like, that, those aren't the, mon- the monsters that I expected Clarice Starling to be hunting. I want her hunting serial killers, psychopaths, madmen, not like negotiating uh, hostages out of a, a Waco siege type thing. Uh, or, or her first big interrogation is matching wits with like a hitman, like i think you just like why you shouldn't give this to me i i will come up with a better show around clarice than alex kurtzman and jenny lamette there's just nothing in their backgrounds that suggested they were even the right choices for this show uh other than jenny lamette working with um jonathan demi on rachel getting married and like uh, what did they talk about a silence of the lamb show on that set or something is that why she's involved i don't really get it yeah this was this was a disappointment this was definitely a bummer for me although on the bright side i have heard good things about the equalizer show um speaking of television there's a law and order they're going to do the crossover last week we talked about uh dylan mcdermott joining law and order organized crime which is the elliot stabler spinoff but they're going to they're going to introduce that show by doing a crossover with svu which means we get to see stabler and, and olivia benson back together again what an exciting episode that is going to be for fans i think that arrives in april Uh, Salma Hayek producing A Boobs Life for HBO Max. How do we not cover this on Collider? And this seems like the perfect horny headline for us. Uh, I mean, first of all, how many people are Googling Salma Hayek and and boobs in a given day? But uh, in this case, A Boobs Life is about a woman whose boobs start talking to her. You know, I, I've seen the movie where like the penis comes to life and, and the, a guy starts talking to his penis. Why can't we have boobs start talking to, to you? I, I'll watch that show. But there's a lot of guys who watch talking boobs, you know? Um, it, it's a funny premise and, and yet a serious premise. Uh, and uh, But I, I like Salma Hayek's taste as a producer, you know? I, I, I think she's good. Maybe, I don't know if she actually is going to star in the show or, or have a, have some sort of appearance or what. But, uh, you know, in the streaming wars like in in these kinds of days like you need to grab people's attention and i think a show called a boobs life does that for obvious reasons uh almost as ridiculous as lil yachty doing an action heist movie based on the game uno i can't like i'd love to see the script for this thing and see how uno uh you know, serves as the foundation for this movie. Why why can't you just do Lil Yachty making an action heist movie? Why does Uno need to be a big part of it? Is it just because, well, you know, we wanted to do it. Nobody wanted to make this movie, but then we went to Mattel and Mattel was like, well, we'll do it if you can find a way to incorporate the game Uno. What parent is like, geez, I love playing Uno with my kids. Why not take them to the Uno movie? Like, do adults think like that? Or are adults smart enough by now? Are they trained to be like, wait, Uno movie, get the fuck out of here. Uh, and little Yachty, like, what? Who, do, do the kids know Little Yachty? I don't, I'm so, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm too old, too white. I don't know what is he, I, I don't even know who Lil Yachty is. He could be black, he could be white. I have no idea. All I know is it's a ridiculous name and a ridiculous premise. Uh, Julian Anderson. Uh, signing out to White Bird, a wonder story. This is just Lionsgate's you know, way to milk the, the wonder franchise. Uh, okay, now I'm curious. Now I have to Google Lil Yachty, one second. Okay, Lil Yachty, got it. That guy, all right, I've seen him before uh yeah jillian anderson white bird a Wonder Story, sure whatever gaz Alazriki doing uh directing the father of the bride remake this is going to have a, a latin cast uh sure okay now, again not familiar with this guy's work but i i know that he did make a, a movie that was well received um and yeah it's about time that, that the studios open up their directing list and, and get some fresh blood in there uh, how about the guys who ripped off the, the, that comic book? I think it was, was it Adam Ellis is the comic book artist. I, I don't have it in front of me, but he basically like he came on Twitter. And was like, I've got all this evidence. We're like, here are the panels for my comic. Here are shots from the film. Here's an email that I have from the filmmakers being like, Hey, we kind of used your thing as an inspiration for our short film. That's been winning awards. Can you promote it for us? Like What? This guy has almost a million followers. It's not that hard to go, I mean, just reach out beforehand and be like, hey, we would love to, to make a movie out of your comic. And if the guy just hasn't had a, a bunch of other, bigger offers from Hollywood, maybe he's like, all right, you know, I'll pull a Stephen King. I'll give you the rights for a and, dollar. And, you know, if something comes of it, you know, th- then we'll we'll revisit the terms then. But yeah, here, here you go, for a dollar, go, go for it. Like they instead they just ripped off his work and basically tried to pass it off as, his own, uh, as their own i just don't know like did these guys kill their their filmmaking career before it even started you got to come out right away don't just like delete things remove like remove your twitter account whatever like come out and say we fucked up we're really young we don't know what we're doing and we really want to be filmmakers you know look at our film let, me, let us know if you're good if you think it's good and, and we will, you know, if we get a job after this, we're gonna use the proceeds from that to, to, to you know, option that guy's work properly. Or I just, I don't even know how you can make it up to that guy. Cause if, if someone just ripped off one of my comics or short stories or whatever it is, I'd be pissed. Um, it, it would suck for these two guys if their filmmaking career was just over before it started. Cause people are like, you know, you don't come back from, from, from a plagiarism thing that like was trending on, on the internet. Uh, you know, I, I do think that these guys, you know, people deserve second chances. It's not like these guys put, you know, said something racist or, or hit a woman or raped somebody. Like, okay, they played somebody and it's not acceptable at all. And they definitely owe him an apology and, and, and they probably owe, you know, the people who viewed the movie an explanation, uh, the people who, who gave it awards at festivals and stuff. But, uh, you know, don't, don't be too harsh on them. I mean, they're definitely stupid. They definitely deserve to be wrapped on the knuckles for it, but I just—I'd like to see a little bit more compassion and, and empathy for the young filmers filmmakers out there, um, whether they're male, female, black, white, whatever. Uh, is that it? Did I actually get ahead of the show? I think I did. Um, you know, what? I, I did have some mailbag questions. So one second. Oh boy, we got another another army hammer. Uh, email in my in my inbox here uh mailbag let's see hold on bear with me guys i know i know i should have done this beforehand sam streak sam streak wrote sundance being online this year uh, i attended all the first first time all the way from ireland managed to catch 12 films really enjoyed them how did i find the move to online what were high points and low points of the festival did I see films like Mass, Passing, or Coda being contenders for the next award season? Um, okay, so I already talked about Sundance, already got into most of that stuff. But one thing I didn't touch on, Sam's Street*. And this was an article that my editors kind of shot down at, at Collider. And I think I saw Steven, Steven Zaytchek at Washington Post uh, put this out there. I feel like there's no, like, *No Madland, maybe it's the front runner, front, runner, front, runner, front runner this Oscar season, but it's a very white movie. Um, I mean, so is Coda, frankly, besides Eugenio Derez. but, uh, I just, I don't see that it has it in the bag. I still see best picture. The, the race is being pretty wide open. And so if you're Apple and you really want to make a splash, like what are we saving this for, for Christmas or Mother's Day or whatever, put it out right now. Put it out like it just got all these great reviews. It's got all this buzz coming off of Sundance. I hate the way that they let things go 11, 12 months. It's like you just lost all the buzz that you spent weeks cultivating at the festival. So if I'm Apple, really take this to heart. Release Coda right now. Release it before the end of the month because that could get into the Oscar race. And once it's in, if it gets a nomination, then you've got two months Two months to build a this-should-be-winning-best-picture campaign. And I think it could win. I really do. Uh, I mean, Nomadland was great. Sound of Metal, great. Uh, I don't know if Sound of Metal – I mean, Sound of Metal might even be lucky to be nominated this year. Um, just judging by the Paul Racy snubs. R- ridiculous. But Coda is a real contender. And I don't know what's coming down the pipeline next year. I don't know what it may be contending – competing with in 2022 at the Oscars. But I think that there's a real opportunity here uh, for Apple and like, you know, why waste any time? Like get this film on your service immediately and qualify it for the Oscars this year. That is what I have to say. Uh, one more mailbag question, right? Will Drowjulis, Drowjulis. Will, you're gonna have to tell me one day how to actually pronounce your last name uh he says i got two questions for you first who is your super bowl pick and second do you think we'll get any movie previews during the game this year with everything being pushed back you're definitely going to get movie previews uh people like again these streamers just have unlimited amounts of money they're they're totally fine dropping five or ten million on on a spot uh what movies do i think we're going to get i I that i don't know i would love to see a first look at some eternals footage for starters um What else? I mean, if I was Paramount, I would probably do something for Top Gun 2. I don't know that we need like a new Black Widow thing. I think it would be cool if Universal teased some Fast 9 action. Um, But I don't know. It may be too early. Some of these movies may have 2022 dates already, in which case they can just, you know, advertise them at next year's Super Bowl. So I'm not sure what is still on the calendar for the second half of this year. You know, like maybe um, with all the Jared Leto stuff, you know, being, you know, getting these nominations and the little things, maybe they do something for, for Morbius. Uh, but maybe it's like, eh, you know, the margins are going to be tight enough on Morbius as it is, since we put a lot of money into a thing, it could make Venom type money. And now, you know, with the theatrical landscape being what it is, maybe we don't have five million dollars to spend on a Morbius spot. Uh, but I think you're, you're going to see plenty of movies being advertised for sure. Uh, oh, as for the pick, I think uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Patrick Mahomes, Chiefs are unstoppable. All this, but I'm I'm a I'm a Pats fan. Okay, I'm a Brady boy. You just it seems stupid betting against Tom Brady in the Super Bowl, particularly if it proves to be Tom Brady's last Super Bowl. Uh, so I my pick is the Bucks. I think that Tom Brady is the miracle man. I think Kansas City. They're great, but they can be a little sloppy from time to time. And if they if they do a good like if you shut down that running game, or if you shut down either Kelsey or Tyree Kill, and you just leave it on the other guy to perform, and and leave it up to Clyde edwards hilaire like I don't know, maybe maybe he chokes in the Super Bowl. Maybe the run game doesn't really get anything going. I like the Tampa Bay defense more than I do the Kansas City defense. So Bucks by four or five points. Tom Brady wins it in the fourth quarter on a touchdown to Robert Gronkowski. That's right, baby. Gronk spiked to end the Super Bowl. Uh, that, I believe, will do it for this episode of the Snyder Cut. I think that's about it. Um, I'm just checking the, the breaking news emails. Renee Zellweger is doing a tree, true crime series for NBC. This is after you know winning the, the Oscar for Judy. Resident Evil reboot sets an end of summer theatrical debut. Yeah, that's about it. Let's just end it there, guys. That, that, that was episode 70 of The Snyder Cut. Thank you so much for watching. Uh, I, I had some appearances this week. I was on What The Show. I was on the Coming to Action podcast talking about the Schmodown draft. I was, I was kind of everywhere. Uh, so find me wherever the internet is found. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Cameo, at the Snyder, And uh, what else? Oh, the blog. I did uh, put up the 2021 movie list theinsnider.blogspot.com Yes, you can make fun of me as much as you want. I am not, I'm a leader. I'm a thought leader. I'm not a follower. So when everyone goes over to Letterboxd, oh, Letterboxd, 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 it's so amazing. Go do your thing. I have my system. It works for me. The You can keep track of every movie that I see in real time and what I think about them. I don't lie. I do not hold back. So I could come out of a movie that, that a friend wrote and say, oh, I loved it. But when it comes time to, to put the movie down and the grade down on the Insider, that, that's just how it is. Uh, so check that out. We're up to 31 movies already. I think that's more movies than I've ever seen in a month's time, which is, I'm on a, already on like a personal best pace. Uh, and I will see you next week, next Thursday for episode 71 of The Snyder Cut. Have a great weekend, everybody. Stay safe. Wear your mask. Wear two if you want. I'll wash both these hands later.